Matthew chapter 27, and we're actually going to look at three passages today. Matthew 27, we'll begin reading at verse 50. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. And then Matthew 28, uh, verse 1 and following. Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. For he is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay. And Hebrews chapter 12. And beginning to read at verse 18. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire and to blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them any more, for they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling." But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who speaks, for if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he has promised, saying, Yet once more, I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken, as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may accept God, by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. Amen. Father, we thank you for this, your word, and it is our desire to grow in our walk with you and uh, into conformity to the image of your Son. And I pray that you would sanctify this, your people, that you would anoint me as I bring your word, and, <coughs> and Father, that you would be glorified uh, as we, uh, with the responses that we offer up. And we pray this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. You may be seated. James Davis tells about a man who went on vacation to Switzerland and he spent his first night in a chalet up in the Swiss Alps. The next morning he, he slept in and uh, he was awake, but while he was still in bed, he felt this trembling and he heard this low rumbling sound. It really scared him. He thought it was an earthquake and so he ran to the front desk to see what was going on. And the man at the front desk uh, smiled and he said, you know, this is really not that unusual up here. Uh, what's going on is that when the sun starts warming up the ice on the east side of the mountain, the ice expands, it starts cracking and making those rumbling sounds. And he says, that's one of the first things that greets us as the sun starts coming up uh, over here. And he said, being on the west side of the mountain, you really have nothing to fear, even though occasionally you'll find avalanches on the other side. And then he said, it's not the end of the world, it's just the beginning of a new day. And as soon as I read that, I said, yes, that's exactly, I think, what is going on with the earthquakes connected with the death of Christ as well as with the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were not signs of the uh, defeat of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's quite the opposite. They're not signs of the end of the age. They were signs of the beginning of the kingdom of Christ. Not signs of uh, uh, Christ's defeat, but really of Christ's victory. Not signs of the power of Satan, but signs of the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I love the way Hebrews 12 words it because it's talking about the spiritual reality that this was pointing towards. It says, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. And I, I love those words, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we're receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, and those are cool words too, we're receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Now I'm mixing metaphors this morning. We've got avalanches, we've got earthquakes, we've got fire, but they all have some things in common. They're destructive forces, but they also bring in some things uh, that are new. And I'm here to tell you this morning that no matter what kinds of rumblings and disturbances we might experience in America in the upcoming years, Jesus Christ is a living Savior. He is on His throne and He is irresistibly moving His kingdom forward from glory to glory. And we can have absolute confidence in that. Now before I proceed, I do need to prove that this was not just an ordinary earthquake. Okay, that this was a miracle designed by God to be a sign. And if it's a sign, it's pointing to something. It's, it's got some meaning that is in it. And unless I can prove that it's a miracle, I can't show that it's a sign. So we'll deal with the sign aspect later. But uh, there are uh, uh, some indicators here that this really was a miracle. First of all, it came immediately after Christ's loud cry of victory. Matthew says that there were five things that happened simultaneously with that cry. Christ died, the temple veil tore, the earth quaked, the rocks split apart, and certain tombs were opened. 
Those were not coincidences. Those were signs of a universe-changing event. And though the miracles may have scared the daylights out of the tourists and the chalets there in, uh, in, in Jerusalem, they were intended to comfort God's people. And I want you to take a look, first of all, at verse 50. It says, Now when, well, Jesus, when he had cried out again with a loud voice, yielded up his spirit, and behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were open. Now those were incredibly remarkable events, and I want you to look at the impact that they had upon the centurion. Verse 54. Now when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. Now Mark gives an interesting twist to this whole story. Uh, where Matthew shows how the miracles produced fear, Mark is narrowing the focus down to one thing that was uppermost in the centurion's mind that brought awe and fear into his mind, and it was Christ's voice. And let me read that for you. Mark 15, verses 37 through 39. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So that's the immediate sequence in, in Mark's mind that there was this cry from Christ immediately, the supernatural rending of the veil. The centurion couldn't see that, though. And there's no other miracle that's mentioned by Mark. And yet verse 39 says, So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. The only thing that Mark says that the centurion was marveling over uh, was the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was that cry that brought awe to his heart. There was something about the cry that made him think, he is divine. There, there was a connection between Christ's voice and all of the other miracles when you put the, the two gospel accounts uh, together. It says, when he saw that he cried out like this, and breathed his last. He said, truly, this man was the Son of God. And so when you put the various accounts together, it's clear that Christ's voice was the epicenter of this earthquake and also the splitting apart uh, of the rocks. And we know why. He was the Son of God who was upholding all things by the word of his power. It's very important that we understand that when Jesus became incarnate, that he did not cease to be God. He was upholding all things by the word of his power, even when Mary was holding him as a baby in her arms. He was upholding her, right? All things by the word of his power. He never ceased to be God, and Jesus was God the Son at the time of creation. He was the word. John 1 talks about that. He was the Father's voice. And when he spoke, creation happened. And as he continued to speak, creation continued to be formed. So when Jesus was in the boat and it was being tossed to and fro and the disciples were so afraid, he said, peace, be still. And instantly the storm and the waves were calmed. Why? They were used to constantly obeying the word of the Son of God. And according to Hebrews 1, uh, all of creation continues to be upheld by the word of his power. 
So when Jesus cries out, creation has to respond. And to me, it's so encouraging. And really, this is the foundation of everything else I'm going to be saying in the sermon this morning, is that the voice of Christ uh, was uh, causing these things to happen back then. But Hebrews 12 says that the voice of Christ continues to be shaking not only the earth, but continues to shake uh, the heavens as well. And so I, I want you to keep this voice of Christ in mind as we go through the sermon. Now, the second thing that sets this earthquake apart from other earthquakes is not just the voice that caused it, but that it coincided with the death of Christ. Third thing that sets it apart is that it was clustered with the other miracles of darkness and the miraculous rending of the veil. The fourth thing that sets it apart is that these were not ordinary fissures uh, in, the, uh, in, the, in the ground, or not fissures, what's it called, uh, these, uh, these, yeah, in California, you've got them, faults, thank you, fault lines. It wasn't following uh, the normal fault lines because even the rocks were split apart uh, when Christ cried out in this way. And uh, while most of the ancient uh, non-biblical accounts that reference this earthquake, and there are a number of them out there, most of them just reference the earthquake itself. There was one author by the name of Thallus who wrote a history. He was an eyewitness of this. He wrote a history 22 years after this event, and uh, a bunch of that history was recorded by Eusebius. And anyway, he said he was not only amazed by the earthquake, he was amazed with these rocks that were completely breaking apart right in front of his eyes. And uh, there's a couple of uh, commentaries that I have. They said they've looked over there and they've seen these fissures. Now, I couldn't find any boulders uh, on, on Google Images, but I've included uh, a, a couple of others there just to give you a little bit of a feel for the kind of things that they would have been seeing, huge boulders being split apart. And then fifthly, this earthquake was selective. I want you to notice in verse 52 that not all of the graves were opened. It was just the graves of the people who were privileged to rise from the dead back at that time. So this is a very smart earthquake. Yeah, it knows just which tombs to open up. Verse 52, and the graves were opened and many, notice it's not all, many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the graves after his resurrection, etc. So this is a very selective uh, earthquake that tore open uh, tombs carved into solid rock. And apparently it was pretty selective in what it toppled as well. Uh, the, this was a massive earthquake. In fact, it was so massive that Thallus said that it leveled a number of cities in uh, Israel. And there's two ancient Roman uh, uh, historians who say that this earthquake uh, leveled cities as far away as Bithynia and Nicaea. This was a massive earthquake, and yet it did not topple the cross. The cross was still standing, according to Mark. But apparently the earthquake did a lot of damage in Jerusalem, but even there it was selective. For example, the massive temple had damage. That This um, epicenter, you know, this earthquake that happened right here, uh, was so strong that it made a, a 30-ton stone lintel in the temple crash to the ground and get broken to pieces. And, of course, that's what the outer curtain was hanging on. 
God wanted, he tore the inside curtain from top to bottom. But first of all, this lintel crashes to the ground. The lights come on. People see that other curtain being torn from top to bottom. So this is a remarkable earthquake. It's so selective, you know. It enables people to see right into the Holy of Holies. And there is more to it than that. Um, the uh, 40 feet from that lintel that crashed to the ground was the Sanhedrin's Supreme Court Chambers. The Talmud in Shabbat 15a tells us, quote, 40 years before the destruction of Jerusalem. So that's right when Jesus is crucified. 40 years before the destruction of the temple, the Sanhedrin was banished. And I find that a remarkable word that they would use. So appropriate. The Sanhedrin was banished from the chamber of hewn stone and sat in the trading station on the Temple Mount. Now, Ernest Martin, who has extensively studied this, has said that the, the, the damage was so extensive that it was structurally unsound. Nobody could go inside of it. And here's uh, some more of his comments. He says, It means that the judgment made by the official Sanhedrin against Jesus within the chamber of hewn stones was the last judgment ever given by the official Sanhedrin in their majestic chambers within the temple. It would show that God the Father demonstrated by the earthquake at Christ's death that the sentence of the Sanhedrin against Jesus would be the last judgment it would ever make in that authorized place. So we got a very smart, selective earthquake here uh, that God has been bringing. And I think all of those evidences show this really was a sign from God. This was a miracle that would have gotten the attention of people. And then three days later, there's another massive earthquake when Jesus rises from the dead. And Matthew 28, verse 2, uh, makes it very clear that it's the angel who brings that earthquake. Let me read that for you. And behold, there was a great earthquake for, and that for could be translated as because, it's showing what causes this earthquake. There was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. Now, I don't know whether it's the angels coming down or his rolling of the stone or his sitting on the stone, maybe with a great big thump that creates the earthquake. We're not told, but somehow it's connected to the angel. This was a supernatural uh, earthquake that was uh, brought about. God designed this shaking to be a sign. Well, if it was a sign, what is the meaning of it? What's it pointing toward? Well, obviously, on the surface, you could say it's, it's showing that Christ's death is different than any other death and his resurrection is different than any other resurrection. But when you look at the other passages that comment on the shaking that's going on here, there's a whole lot more to it than that. And I want to cover five, uh, five different things that were, that were happening uh, at this time. Here's the five things that I believe it pointed towards. First, it powerfully symbolized God's presence and approval. Now, to me, this is the most comforting and the most remarkable part of this whole thing because the previous three hours were hours of silence. Uh, at the beginning of that darkness, Christ is crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And during this interval, it's almost as if the heavens are brass, as if God has turned his back upon the sun. But as soon as these words of victory come out of Jesus' lips, 
Everything changes. The lights come back on. And God issues forth in a whole cluster of miracles that show that He was present. And He approved of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Holman's Bible Dictionary says this about earthquakes. Earthquakes are used symbolically in the Bible. Many times God's judgment or visitation is described using imagery of an earthquake. Many times an earthquake is a sign of God's presence or of God's revelation of Himself. And let me give you three examples. Isaiah 64, verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence. And that idea of the earth shaking at the presence of God, you find over and over again in the Scripture. I should have actually included some more Scriptures. Uh, I could have given you Scriptures from the conquest of Canaan. Uh, or from the judges, or at Mount Sinai when God is shaking the earth. But I think the ones I've included are good enough. Uh, Ezekiel 38, verse 20, prophesied about an earthquake that would happen in Israel and said that earthquake is a symbol not just of the shaking of the earth, but the shaking of heaven as well. And then it goes on to talk about that, that earthquake. It says, it sh- and the earth shall shake at my presence. Shake at my presence. Nahum 1, verse 5. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt and the earth heaves at his presence. And I've given other examples in your outline that show when the presence of God is there, many times God announces it, symbolizes it uh, with an earthquake. And so what were Christ's last words that he cries out with this awesome voice? It was not the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? No, these are words that demonstrate God's presence is now with him. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. At the very moment that God seemed the farthest that he could possibly be from his disciples, he was actually the most present. He was present in their lives. And so I would encourage you, don't interpret all of the bad things that are going on in America as an evidence that God is not present, that God is not working. Many times God will use the very humanism, the very actions of Satan that he's trying to undo his kingdom as the means for advancing his kingdom. We misinterpret history when we try to say God is not present when things are not going as we would wish that they, that they were going. We might wish that we didn't have to face so many spiritual earthquakes in the future. And I think we're going to be facing some major economic and other spiritual earthquakes. But I can assure you, God is on his throne. And the mountain that is so threatening with its rumblings is both judgment on the old order and it is safety to those who are committed to the new order. And let me give you an illustration that tries to show how both are possible at exactly the same time. Uh, I think some of you have seen the fabulous photography of Jack Brower. Uh, he's, I love his photography. He's a nature photographer, but he, his specialty is mountains. He goes all over the world hiking mountains and, and taking these spectacular, spectacular pictures. Well, on July 12, 2003, he almost died in an earthquake. He was um, uh, planning to spend, he was climbing the Julian Alps in Slovenia, and he was planning to spend the night in a mountain hut, get up early the next morning and start uh, taking some snapshots. And as he was climbing up the mountain, he heard this 
low rumbling sound. And at first he was confused. He didn't know what it was. And all of a sudden he realized, this is an earthquake. And there was a, a landslide that was coming at him, big boulders tumbling down the mountain. Now he knew if he ran away, he would be dead for sure. In fact, one other person did die. A boulder hit him in the chest, knocked him off the mountain. But what Jack Brower did is he ran toward the landslide as fast as his legs could carry him, straight toward the mountain. And, of course, he was running toward a cliff. And he hugged the side of that cliff as the landslide went about 15 feet further than him, started the boulders and dirt and everything going over the edge. And that's exactly what we need to do. When Christ brings his threatening judgments and his landslides to wipe away the humanism in America, we need to be running to the Lord Jesus Christ uh, for safety. Uh, Run to the very Christ who threatens to consume you because it's by faith when you run to him that you find your safety. You run to him, you cling to him. And so the earthquake was a sign of God's presence. His presence in judgment, his presence in blessing and safety as well. Now, secondly, this earthquake signaled the importance of this event in God's eyes. God was shaking the foundation spiritually, and he symbolized that by shaking the foundations physically. Hebrews 12 makes the point that if the shaking of the earth at Mount Sinai, and that's a a very... A literal shaking of the earth at Mount Sinai showed the importance of that event. He said, how much more does the shaking show the importance of the cross in our lives? And we'll deal with Hebrews 12 a little bit later on. But we do need to ask ourselves, how important is the cross to me? I want to read you how important the cross was to the Apostle Paul. Paul said, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now, if you take that at face value, which I do, that means there wasn't a single thing that Paul did that did not flow from the cross of Christ. Shaving, preaching, tent making, everything flowed from the cross of Christ. And the tragedy of many a Christian life is I think we spend an entire lifetime doing most of our things in our own strength, to our own glory, in our own time, and in our own way. And Paul said that anything in this life that is not built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ is going to be burned up as hay, wooden stubble, to use another destructive metaphor of fire. Now we're going to be seeing that Hebrews 12 indicates that there is a shaking of heaven and earth that began at Calvary and has begun to remove everything that does not flow from Christ so that the things that do flow from Christ will remain. Now let's just think about that for a moment. Will the stuff that's going on in Washington, D.C. right now remain? I would have to say most of it, no. There might be a tiny little bit of what's going on in D.C. that will remain, but most of it's going to be wiped away. And uh, God is shaking the things that are humanistic. His landslides are designed to show that idols are no match for His power. And it's so important that we follow all of His admonitions so that we are not swept away 
uh, when uh, humanistic America is swept away. Now, even more important than looking at uh, the humanism that's being shaken up in America, and it's being shaken up because it doesn't work. Humanistic economics doesn't work. Humanistic politics doesn't work. There's a shaking that's going on. But far more important than that is asking ourselves about the shaking that's going on within us. Within us. How important is the cross of Christ to you? Does everything you do relate to the cross of Christ? How about your housework? People say housework. You know, how does that relate to Christ? If it's to have eternal significance, it must flow from the cross. And Christ says it can. He says, even the giving of a cup of cold water will by no means lose his reward. If what? If we're doing it in his name. If we're doing it in the power of Christ. We're doing it to his glory. So to what degree does the cross of Jesus Christ relate to your children? How you, how you raise your children in the, in, in the Lord? To what degree does the cross of Christ relate to your job and to civics? Everything needs to flow from the cross. We're going to be seeing shortly that if we don't filter everything through the cross, it's going to be blown away by Mount Sinai. The earthquake was one of several miracles showing the importance of the cross in God's eyes, and it's got to be just as important and just as central to us. Now, thirdly, the earthquake hinted at the extent of Christ's victory. Christ's victory was not just internal and personal. This is not just an internal, personal shaking. This is shaking the very universe. And I love the the hymn, Joy to the World. I've mentioned this to you two or three times. That phrase in there that talks about the victory and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ going far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. Far as, far as the curse is found. Okay, Uh, how far is the curse found? There's thorns and thistles and the very creation is groaning. That means Christ's grace goes far as the curse is found. It affects the very physical universe. Romans 8 said that in the first century, the very physical universe was undergoing birth pangs. It was groaning. It was in labor. You know the kind of labor you're producing a baby, right? So what is it in labor? What is it it producing? It is producing a new heavens and a new earth in which dwells righteousness. And what's the telos of Romans 8? The telos is the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's connected in some way with us with the resurrection of our bodies. It says that all of All of creation is moving and expectantly looking for that final goal. What's the beginning of that process? Romans 8 says that it's the first coming of Christ. So let's take a look at Romans chapter 8. And this is a passage which clearly, I think very, very clearly, indicates that even though creation suffered bondage because of Adam's fall, God is making all things new. Romans 8, beginning at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. So there is something that the physical creation is eagerly looking forward to and that something is connected with the sons of God, is connected with us. 
the, you know, it's, it's really only as the lords of creation are renewed that creation is in any way benefited. Th those two are connected. Okay, verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. And I want you to notice the, the, the turning point is the first century. Until now. Until now. Not only that, but we also have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. So there's something that begins at the first century. It's not going to be completed until the second coming of Christ. Now, when you mix Romans 8 together with 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you realize that there is a progressive shaking that is inaugurating more and more of the final product into every area of life. 1 Corinthians 15 says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. When does that happen? It's as Christ is coming back. Before he even arrives on the earth, we're caught up to meet him in the air. And when we come back, and there's going to be the final judgment, but it says that's the last enemy. That happens just before the second coming. That means every other enemy has to be put under Christ's feet prior to that time. So when Christ saved the thief on the cross, it was a kind of earnest money or a down payment or a foreshadowing of the salvation of all of God's redeemed. When he opened those graves, it was a, an earnest of the opening of all graves. When he resurrected many, it was an earnest of the resurrection of all. That's why it's called the first fruits. And I believe, and there's a number of commentators believe, that when he began shaking the very physical earth, it was an earnest, a sign as it were, that Christ's redemption is going to affect the very physical creation. And it makes sense. Didn't the whole creation enter into bondage as a result of Adam's fall? Well, it makes sense. The moment the second Adam brings his redemption and says, it is finished, that it's going to respond in some way as well. It makes perfect sense. Now, how extensive is the application of Christ's redemption to the universe? Whether you're pre-mill, on-mill, or post-mill, don't get hung up on that. You're still going to say, they have different orders, but you're still going to say, the entire universe is going to be impacted by the redemption of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, but many people don't understand that heaven is going to be merged with earth. There's going to be a renewed earth. It's going to be very tangible. And along these lines, I highly recommend Randy Elkhorn's book on heaven. That's such a marvelous book that shows every aspect of this universe impacted by the redemption of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what's the order? And this is my opinion, okay? Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 says that Jesus must remain at the right hand of the Father until all enemies are put under his feet. Last enemy is death. But he says all enemies will be put under his feet prior to that time. Now, is that all hyperbole? Paul denies that it is hyperbole. He denies it. 1 Corinthians 15, 27. He says that God the Father is the only exception to all things being put under Christ's feet. Well, that's pretty extensive. 
everything except for the Father. Here's how Hebrews 2 verse 8 words it. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him, but now we do not yet see all things put under him. In other words, he's saying it's all been given to him, but there's a progression that happens over, uh, over history where it's applied to the church, and through the church it's being applied more and more uh, to this uh, world. In fact, I want you to turn with me to Colossians chapter 1 because this is a paradigm of God's shaking, leveling everything that was lost by Adam and building up a whole new creation redeemed by Jesus. Colossians chapter 1, let's begin reading at verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now, firstborn son inherits the farm. That's the imagery that's going on. And so he's the inheritor of all creation. Verse 16, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. That's pretty extensive. He's the creator of all things. And we're going to be seeing shortly he redeems and he transforms the same all things that he created. Not all without exception, but all without distinction. That means that there is no facet of creation that is outside the scope of his redemption, not even the physical creation. Verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who was the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. So his redemption reconciles everything that Adam lost. In other words, Satan is not the victor. Jesus is the victor. It's not a situation where, okay, Christ has managed to salvage a little bit from this world that's been lost to Satan. No, he's yanking this whole world back from Satan, and it's going to be a world in which dwells righteousness. And so what better image of the groanings and the travails and the birth pangs of creation than that earthquake? See, it wasn't just the elect who were moved by what Jesus had just done. It was the very physical universe that was being moved. <clears throat> now, of course, many people are skeptical of this. They have a hard time living by faith. The power of the resurrection of Jesus just does not seem to be powerful enough to accomplish everything that I've said, you know, in terms of his victory long term. Uh, they look at all of the bad things that are going on in the world and they say, see, this is why I have doubts about this. And they look at America and they say, does it really look like Jesus is reigning in America? And what about the rest of the world? Look at all the tornadoes and the AIDS and the mosquitoes and and uh, the wars and all kinds of bad things that are happening. And I just tell them, read Deuteronomy 28 and 29. It's proof that Jesus is reigning because that passage there indicates that it's only as the covenant community is faithful to the covenant that you're going to begin to see even the very physical creation tangibly blessing that covenant community. It's got to be the whole covenant community that does that. Watch 
the transformations videos sometime. I know there's uh, some weirdness in, in the videos. But they show how every aspect that's connected with a community that's pervasively Christian begins to be blessed by God in very tangible ways. There's one community in one of the videos in Guatemala. And it's like 100% of the people were Christians. And they were seeking to live by the, 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 the Word of God. And you could just see in every area of their lives, there's fantastic blessings. Even the soil was transformed. Even the crops the scientists came to study that because they were just blown away. What in the world has made the difference? They couldn't figure it out. It was God's blessing that had, had come upon them. Now, it's hard to have faith when you look at the waves that you're walking on. But this Resurrection Sunday, I would urge you to fix your faith upon the Lord Jesus, who's not just the finisher of your faith. He is the, the beginninger of your faith. He is the finisher of your faith. And you look at Romans 8 and 1 Corinthians 15 and Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 65 and so many other passages, it not only talks about the beginnings of, of uh, this faith uh, affecting the world, but it's saying there is so much more that yet has to flow from the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, just as to the physical creation, because this is what I get more questions on, you know, okay, what about the physical creation? Well, Isaiah 11 says that long before the end of time, depending on whether you're pre-mill, post-mill, all-mill, but long before the end of time, the physical creation will be so blessed by God that the wolf will lie down with the lamb without eating it. And the leopard will lie down with the goat without eating it. And a child will be able to lead a calf and a lion. And a cobra is not going to be as aggressive as it used to be. And Isaiah 65 picks up some of the same imagery, and it indicates God is in the process of renewing all things. Now, both passages indicate those kinds of things you're not going to see, at least not pervasively, until the world is converted, until the world is full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the ocean beds. Men must be redeemed as the lords of creation before the creation itself is going to be responding in blessing in their lives. And it makes perfect sense. And it's not going to be perfect. Uh, I'll tell you that. So we're not settling eschatology here. It's not going to be perfect prior to the second coming when we get resurrected and everything is going to be perfectly renewed. But that making of all things new has already begun. That's the point that I think we need to understand. It's already begun. And Hebrews describes all of this as a shaking to remove the old things, the old order, so that the new things may remain. So the third purpose of this earthquake was to be a tangible sign that the work of the cross and resurrection, it actually impacts the physical creation. The fourth purpose commentators have isolated, is that this darkness and this earthquakes were warnings of God's judgments. And in our postmodern world, they don't like to talk about judgment, but it's so important that we do so. You cannot even have redemption without judgment. How did we get redeemed? Not by sweeping sins under the carpet, but it was by God bringing His judgments upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you always have judgment with redemption. That's why theologians speak of them as redemptive judgments. They are advancing uh, God's kingdom. And this is true, uh, not just on the, the individual level. On the individual level, what's happening? Redemption destroys something. It's destroying our old nature, 
and we are being renewed in our new nature into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ more and more. This is true on a cosmic level. This is true on a national level. You look at Joel 2, and you see that he speaks not only of the judgment of Israel, the old Israel, but out of that Israel, he's redeeming a new Israel, and he's pouring out Pentecost upon them. So there's the blessing. There's the judgment. Both have to be held together. And I think so many postmodern pastors, they're willing for you to affirm anything positive. So long as you don't say, but you're in heresy, you're wrong. But let me tell you something. The cross of Jesus Christ doesn't just bring blessing, it destroys. It does both. There is destruction, there is blessing at the same time. And Hebrews 12 makes a big point of that when it applies the shaking to kingdom realities. Okay, the last purpose of the earthquake was that Calvary's rumblings answered Sinai's rumblings. And this is such a, a cool point. I want you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. And actually, before I read this passage, let me give you a little bit of background on this that will help you to, to understand it because both the Old Testament and the New Testament have, have symbols of mountains, and there's two mountains especially that are contrasted. The first mountain is Mount Sinai, which Galatians says is in Saudi Arabia. Now, the location is very important. Saudi Arabia, where Mount Sinai is, is a pagan land in a desert, no water, far away from Jerusalem, far away from, the, uh, from the, um, the sacrifices and from the blood. And so what it does is it's showing how God's law applies, yes, even in a foreign land. God's law applies to all of the world. But the problem is when you're away from the sacrifices of God, what does it do? It's a curse. It's, it's the thunderings are fearful. They're terrifying. They're not anything that you're going to want to be standing in front of. And so Mount Sinai has always been a symbol of judgment. Now, in contrast, there is Mount Zion where the temple was. And Mount Zion is patterned after the heavenly Zion, just as the temple was patterned after the heavenly temple. So what's in this Mount Zion? Some people say, well, there's no law there. It's only grace. No, 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 no. The law of God is exactly the same. Those two tablets were taken from Mount Sinai where they only brought curse and they are put into the temple, into the Ark of the Covenant, under the mercy seat, under the sprinkling of the blood which points to the Lord Jesus. And so what it shows is the blessing of the law can only happen as we are united to the Lord Jesus Christ and as he is living that law out through us by his power. It's just a beautiful, beautiful symbolism. So Sinai is a symbol of law without grace and without power. Zion is the symbol of the law under God's grace lived out by God's power. Okay, if you understand that, and, and most, most of the Christians, I think, would have already been instructed in that, I think this passage makes a whole lot more sense. Let's read verse, beginning at verse 18. Hebrews 12, beginning at verse 18. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire and to blackness and darkness and tempest. Those are all negative images, aren't they? We don't like that. Verse 19. And the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. 
for they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and tremble, trembling. He said, we've not come to Mount Sinai where we're exposed as sinners who have broken the law. So if you come to the law apart from grace, it's a terrifying thing. It's not any, you don't like the law of God. All it does is condemns you to hell. But if you've experienced God's grace, you're no longer under the judgment of God's law. You relate to the law under the mercy seat, under grace. So you're not under law, you're under grace. You're not under Mount Sinai, you're under the mercy seat, under Mount Zion. Can you see that? It's just a beautiful, beautiful contrast. Verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. So when we have Jesus as our mediator, we have the same laws, but they're suddenly precious because Jesus answered the law's demands perfectly. And those are the only two ways you can relate to God's law. At Mount Sinai, or at the mercy seat. Only two ways. Then verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. Now there is no escaping God speaking to us, his law word. No escaping from that. And the rumbling that results brings destruction to those who are out there on the open, but it passes by those who cling to Christ, who run to the cliff, right? All of that terrifying law goes right over top of us and so verse 25 says, see that you do not refuse him who speaks. That's dangerous. Even in the new covenant, it is stupid to be out here in the open in rebellion against God. No, you want to be smack up against that cliff. You want to run to Christ. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised saying, yet once more, I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken. And I want you to notice again that the, the shaking process has already begun. It's in the first century. That's present tense. They are being shaken as of things that are made that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear for our God is a consuming fire. There's no difference in God. <laughs> He's still a consuming fire. He brings avalanches. He brings all kinds of things, but we're secure in Christ. So hopefully you can see the paradigm. The more we receive of Christ, the more He is making all things new, and the more we enter into the shaking work of the cross and resurrection of Christ, the more everything we touch becomes new. And that's Christ's whole purpose is to make all things new. And he does that through his body. He does it through his body, which is the church. Here is how Paul words it in 2 Corinthians 5, uh, verses 17 through 20. And, and, and he doesn't say this is Satan's world. And yeah, Christ can have a few crumbs. We'll give him a few. No, he's going to take that world. It's the exact opposite. Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That's where it all starts, individuals who are transformed by God's grace. 
Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation, that is, that God was in Christ, notice how universal this is, reconciling the cosmos, that's the Greek, reconciling the cosmos to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So the key is not changing God. The key is change in us. And as we change, the world changes. The cross and the resurrection bring both judgment and blessing. And the question is not, has the shaking stopped? It is not stopped. The question is, are we hiking on the east side of that Swiss mountain under the rumbling, threatened to be completely consumed by the avalanche, or are we hiking on the west side of that Swiss mountain with a, a guide telling us, don't worry, you're secure, this is not the end of the world, this is the beginning of a brand new day. If you're outside of Christ, yes, you should be terrified by the law of Christ. It will send you to hell because you're on the wrong side of the mountain. But if you're a believer, God calls you to shake off your fears. You have no reason to fear. Instead, he calls you to live by faith, to advance the cause of Christ in absolutely everything that you do and watch him bring victory out of absolute disaster. And I don't, I, we're in a disaster right now. But he's calling you to walk by faith. Now, in a moment, we're going to be singing the words of the song, The Earth Shakes at the Sound of His Voice. And those who are singing that song are singing it from the vantage point of the west side of the mountain. Okay? It's, uh, we're part of a mighty spiritual army whom God is destined to be even more victorious than Gideon or any of the Old Testament saints, including Joshua. And you might think, you've got to be crazy, Phil. Greater than Joshua and Gideon, that's exactly what Jesus said. Exactly. Here's what he said. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there is not risen one greater than John the Baptist. So he's the greatest of all of the Old Testament saints. But he goes on to say, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Do you really believe that? Do you believe that the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ is such a stupendous reversal of history that even the least of the saints today are greater than John the Baptist, who was greater than any other Old Testament saint. He says that's the vision that you need to have. Now let me read for you the, the words of this song. The earth shakes at the sound of his voice. The nations tremble before him. The idols of men are all falling. The idols are not triumphing. They're falling. The only question is, are you lined up with the idols or are you lined up with Christ? So it says, the idols of men are falling at the feet of the Lord our God, at the feet of the Lord our God. The Lord is a warrior, fearless is he. The Lord is mighty in battle. His armies outnumber his enemies. When they shout, the strongholds of Satan come crashing down and Babylon is falling, falling down. Do you believe that? Or do you believe that Babylon is invincible? There's no way we could take on the Babylon of our day. Uh, I hope you can sing that in, in real faith, that Babylon is falling. 
The song continues, The Lord is a Savior, gracious is He. The Lord is full of compassion. His army is also His family. The Lord is a kingdom. Jesus is King. We reign forever and ever. He's given us power and authority. Now, it may seem foolish to walk around the walls of our Jericho and to shout a triumph against the walls of our Jericho that seems so impregnable, but that's exactly exactly what Jesus calls us to do by faith. He calls us to speak by faith, to walk by faith, to take dominion by faith, and by faith to be advancing the cause of His kingdom forward to the final telos, the final end of all of history. May we as a church do so. Amen.